we're going to talk through, we're in Matthew 12. Um, the, here, here's one of the examples of where I think the, the chapters, the chapter divisions in your Bible do us a disservice. Because I think it gives the impression that what we were talking about last week where Jesus says, um, take my yoke and my burden is light. Um, it gives the impression that we've moved on to something else. And I actually don't think that's the case at all. I think we're talking about the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, if you look back at Matthew chapter 10, there's a circumstance where Jesus is sending his disciples out. And he says, I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. My, my, my sheep are missing. They're lost and they've wandered from me. And I want you to go out and tell them that the kingdom is here. And as they go to do that, Jesus then basically also goes out. He also seems to be going to Israel, but he's coming with woe. He's, he's approaching and saying, these guys are bringing the good news of the kingdom. I'm, he's going to the people of Israel and saying, you know, look at the risks you run if you continue to follow this kingdom. And what he's done is he's, he's kind of put these two kingdoms in contrast. You have the kingdom that the Jewish elite have kind of set up uh, that come with all these, all these rules and all these extra things that God never established. And then you have the kingdom that Jesus is offering. And I think that's what he's, what he's kind of comparing and contrasting all through chapter 10 through chapter 11 when he's talking about take, uh, take upon my burden, it's the burden of his kingdom versus the kingdom that they're otherwise doing. And I think what he's going to do today is we're going to talk about the Sabbath, but I don't think this is about the Sabbath. I think he's using it to contrast what this kingdom that they're kind of involved in looks like and then what the kingdom that Jesus brings actually does. And so I think that's what we're running into uh, at the start of Matthew 12. Here's, uh, here's how it goes. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the first thing I want to look at is look where the Pharisees are at. So the, Jesus is in the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it... Now, I'm afraid that, that when I, I've read this before, and I just had the impression that they were out doing this thing, and then someone told the Pharisees, or they kind of figured it out later... And then they kind of said something to Jesus about it. But that really isn't the circumstance that they've presented here. Where are the Pharisees at? They're in the grain field. They're kind of lying in wait for Jesus to catch him doing something. This is an interesting thing from the Pharisees specifically because they have regulations about what you can do on the Sabbath. Specifically how far you can go. You can't walk more than half a mile. Otherwise it's considered work. Basically they figured out how long it would take the guy that's farthest out to be able to get to the temple and back and said, okay, you can walk that far. So they can't walk more than half a mile, and on the Sabbath, they're using their half a mile to kind of troll Jesus around and see if they can catch him doing the wrong thing, to lay in wait for him, to see if they can catch him screwing up. So we need to be careful about that ourselves. Have you guys ever done that? Now, maybe you're not you know, creeping in a grain field on somebody. That might be a surprise to me. But... It wouldn't surprise me to find out that a good majority of this room at some time or other has decided that we know who someone is. And then we keep an eye out on them and the behavior, the things that they say and the things that they do, so that our determination of who they are can be vindicated. And we need to be very, very careful about that. You see, we don't give people a chance to be different once we've decided who they are. And there's, there's no honor 
and being able to be, have rightfully shamed someone else. I delight when I'm wrong about somebody. And I try to learn my lesson to not have taken that step to begin with. So what the Pharisees are doing, we run the risk of, right? Waiting to catch someone doing the thing that we thought we would do. And we run into that problem because we don't know them. And we have two options. We either start getting to know people or we stay off deciding who people are until we do. Okay? Pharisees are going to run that risk. They're going to be wrong. It will be shameful for them. We need to watch it and make sure that we don't create that in our own relationships as well. And as Christians especially, this is not only dangerous with people, which puts us in an elevated status that we don't belong. But if Christians are doing that, it gives people the wrong understanding of God. As if God is creeping in a grain field, waiting for you to do the wrong thing so he can stick a finger in your face and say, I knew that you were a sinner. We've got to be careful. Christians, little Christ, right? Like we've, we've got to be careful in how we're treating other people for their benefit, for our benefit, and frankly, how people take in God. So what is their complaint? What, what are the Pharisees upset about, right? Are they stealing? Are they, they're walking through a grain field and they're, they're taking grain. That sounds like stealing, but you notice that isn't what the Pharisees say. They don't, they don't accuse him of stealing. As a matter of fact, let's look in, in Leviticus 19. This is a part of the law that, that God hands, hands down to Moses. This is what he says. Listen carefully on what God cares about. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now before we dismiss this, right, as something that happens in the Old Testament, I want you to consider the fact that that I am the Lord your God follows other things like do not commit adultery. You don't get to put this on a lower tier and say God doesn't care about this. There's a principle there that I, I think we actually struggle with a little bit in our day. Maybe, maybe our gates should be a little bit more open. Maybe our houses should be a little more open. Maybe our stuff should more freely go out the door in preparation for the poor and the sojourner. It's, it's funny that he repeats these instructions in Leviticus 23 and in Deuteronomy 23. And as a matter of fact, he mentions the grain in the description of Deuteronomy 23. He says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes. Now, listen to that. That's not like, oh, hey, man, if you're starving, I suppose. When you're walking, th- God is giving your neighbor's vineyard away to you. Okay, as you're walking through, eat as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. Take what you need. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Given that Matthew text doesn't seem to put a sickle in Jesus' hand, I think they're walking through the grain field taking a little grain. Seems to be legal, right? They're not stealing. And the Pharisees don't make that charge. So what's the complaint? They're working. It's work. The Pharisees had 39 categories of Sabbath law. What you could do, what you couldn't do. Jesus was working. Now, we need to be careful when we digest stuff that comes out of the Pharisees' mouth. Because I think we have this uh, gut reaction that says, Pharisee bad. Um, yeah, kind of. All right? But recognize where their concern is coming from. It is, it is at least partially legitimate. Honoring the Sabbath, obeying the Sabbath, was uh, the fourth commandment. Of the ten commandments that Moses receives from God... It's the fourth commandment. It's in Exodus 28 through 11. Here's what God says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day 
and made it holy. Since the time of that commandment, the people of God went through two different exiles where they were removed from the land that God had promised them. God goes through the work of getting them out of Egypt from under Pharaoh, and he says, I will give you a promised land. He leads them through the desert to that promised land. They get there, and then they disobey God, and they run from him, and they ignore his commandments. They were exiled in 740 B.C. by the Assyrians, part of the uh, kingdom of Israel was, and the rest around 598 B.C. by the Babylonians. In one of the books of the Old Testament that describes the history of God's people, we get the following explanation for the exile. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. The Pharisees saw their exile as an issue of righteousness. And they're partially right. They had rebelled against God and they had disobeyed his commands. And as a result, they ended up under a foreign ruler as punishment, as a way for God to get their attention. The thing is, we struggle with this, but oftentimes suffering is God's megaphone. It's what has to happen for us to see him and for, him, for us to hear him calling, come back to me. And he will do that. If you're familiar with, that, with the story of Israel during that time, that's exactly what he's doing. But the reasoning went that in order to be returned to their rightful place, if the issue was righteousness, if they wanted to be out from foreign domination, with God's people in control and the enemies under their feet, they simply needed to amp up their righteousness. That's why you have 39 categories of what you can do on the Sabbath. God says not to work. So they painstakingly try to figure out what work is or is not and draw lines on the outside of that to protect their righteousness. And think of the situation that the Pharisees are in even at the time, right? They're looking at Rome and they're saying, we're still in exile. We're not home yet. We're still under a foreign enemy. We do not dominate. The enemies are not underneath our feet. Yahweh is not praised on Zion. We're still in exile. And so they look at Jesus, and Jesus isn't doing the things of righteousness that they want done. He's not washing his hands ceremonially like they want done. He's picking grain on the Sabbath like a crazy man. They look at him and they say, this can't be the guy that's going to bring us back from exile. Where's his righteousness? Do you understand where they're coming from? We need to be reasonable with the Pharisees, okay? That's where, they've got it wrong. I'm not saying they don't have it wrong, but you need to understand what they're trying to protect. We should understand where they're coming from. But what was one of the accusations uh, back that we talked about earlier of why they were, they were in exile? They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. Yes, see, they're still, they're still missing that. They're still missing that. And think about what's happening to them right now. They're looking... For redemption. They want their freedom. They want to be returned to the rightful place. And they are face to face with Jesus, who in all those things are true. And they're missing it. The one who comes to bring freedom and liberation, and they're looking him in the face, and they're missing it. They're chasing the fulfillment of all God's promises around in a grain field in an effort to trip him up. And tell him how it is. (laughs) They seem to have missed that part about the mocking of his messengers. 
God sent word to his people through prophets to bring them back to him, and they rejected it. How about us? How about you? We need to be careful here. We run the same risk of missing it, of coming face to face with Jesus. And because he doesn't do the things we want in the way that we want, we look past him. Some just reject him flat out and say there is no God. If he's not going to do the things that I want in the way that I want, then he must not exist. There must be a God somewhere that is made in my own image that I can worship. Or instead, we say there is a God, but we build one in the way that we like. So we, we ignore the words that he sent to us with his prophets and through his word and only use the stuff that we find agreeable. I'll take a little bit of this here and there. We see, we see that a lot. We see that a lot. But if Jesus is not from God, then you can reject all of him and everything he says is a lie. I don't know what we're doing here. If Jesus is not God, the things that are coming out of his mouth are predicated from a lie. It's okay to bail now. You would be foolish to give him any more allegiance than you would your run-of-the-mill horoscope. But if he is indeed Jesus, Son of God, don't miss him when he's right in front of you. You take him for what he is. Jesus uh, has, has kind of heard their response. And now he responds. Here's what he says. Jesus, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Now, do you remember who he's talking to? The teachers of the law, right? Right? What does he say? Have you not read? That's, that's offensive. <laughs> that's an offensive thing to say. Surely you've, you've read the scriptures. This is like coming up to Dan after a normal sermon and be like, Dan, that was cute. But... but Surely you've read the Bible. Here's the following. Let me enlighten you. Okay? This is a bit of a burden from Jesus. Have you not read what David did? David is a revered figure. He's the greatest king in all Israel. There's a promise that says that the, this Messiah that will redeem the people will come from the lineage of David. So he's done two things. A, you're not reading the scriptures. And B, don't you know this story of David that I'm going to tell? It's not a good way to fire up a conversation if you're not Jesus. Okay? That's what he starts out with. Jesus refers to a time when David's military ability is causing the current king of Israel, Saul, to be jealous, and he seeks to kill David. David flees from Saul and prepares to defend himself, and he ends up in a city called Nob, and he needs food, and he needs weapon, because here's the deal. If something's going to go down, you need some eats, and you need some weaponry if you're going to fight the current king. That's what he's after. He goes into the priest. The priest's name is Ahimelech, and he asks for bread. And the priest says, I don't have any common bread. David says, well, give me what you got. The problem is, is the only thing that he has on hand is, is called the bread of the presence. This is very interesting. It comes from, this is a dictate from God. He says, I want you to bake this bread, and there's 12 loaves. The 12 loaves represent this covenant, this agreement that God has made with the people of Israel. Israel is a man. He has 12 sons, and from there, that's where our nation of Israel comes from. Okay? These, these 12 loaves of bread are baked by the priests. And uh, they, they're only to be consumed by the priests. But that's what David's asking for. He says, give, give me some of that bread. We need it. The priest gives it to him, and David eats it. Now, that's an interesting example for Jesus to give. See, the law was clear. David actually lied to get the bread. He said, he said the king sent me. The king didn't send him. He, he was fleeing from the king. He lied to get the bread. 
And the priest, it, there's no caveat in the law. There's nothing that says, well, it's, it's okay to give this out in certain circumstances. Like, it's, it's the bread of the presence. It goes to the priests. So, like, I was reading this week, I thought, Jesus, that's a, that's a weird example. It's a weird example. It seems like what Jesus is, is basically saying here is, is, why do you revere David? He's soon to have skirted the law. What are you holding me to a standard that you don't hold to him? What are you harassing me for? Now, I don't know. I'm not sure that's a compelling of argument, really. It might be right, but there's something about that that leaves me like, eh, I don't know. But I think there's more here. I think there's more here. So hold that thought. Let's hold in our minds thought number one, which is, why was that okay? Why does Jesus seem to think this is not a problem? That's thought number one. He continues, and he repeats this again. He's, he's, he's really kind of grinding on him. Or have you not read in the law, teachers of the law, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Who's working? The priest. He's, he's making bread. He's offering sacrifices. Guy's working on the Sabbath, right? God doesn't give a caveat. He, he doesn't say it's okay for the priests. He doesn't specifically say He's, he's basically saying to the Pharisees, you guys revere the law and judge all righteousness from it, but there's a kink in the halls. God commands the priests to work on the Sabbath. They're making sacrifices. They're cooking bread. I mean, they're doing work. But God also said not to, to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Don't do the work. And in Moses' law, there is not a caveat for it. There isn't anything that says this is fine. And Jesus not only says that it's fine, he says they're guiltless. They're guiltless. Now, certainly the Pharisees wouldn't have thought the priests were guilty for doing so, but Jesus has kind of put them in a weird spot. And frankly, I agree. It took me a while to wrap my mind around what Jesus has done here in this circumstance. So God is using a conundrum that exists within a law that he himself created to confound those who are trying to convict him by his own law. That's weird. That's a slinky of a thing going on. That's what he's done. It's, it'd be like if I told one of my kids, hey, you need to clean your room tomorrow. And then they, I see them tomorrow and they're cleaning the room. And I said, what are you doing? I said, well, you told us to clean your room. I said, well, I said to do that tomorrow. It's today. And then I wait another day and then they are, they're cleaning the room. And I say, hey, what are you doing? I said, we're cleaning. I say, well, I said to do that tomorrow. That's today. See, I, I put a kick in the hose. There's something weird about that description. It can't be followed all the way. Something's up. I feel like Jesus has kind of done that a little bit. My quick reaction to what Jesus is saying, is that the law that these guys are adhering to, this moral code, simply can't bear the weight of the legalism that religious folks put on it. You see, this isn't really a conundrum. It sounds like a conundrum, but it's not. There's an element missing that I think would help us digest that. There's a context that when held in the right understanding causes this question to go away. And the Pharisees are missing that context. And frankly, uh, you guys might be at the moment. That's all right. We're, we're going to get there. You've got to hold that. That's number two in tandem, right? We're holding in. Why is it okay for David to take the bread? And, I, and we don't understand this example Jesus has given about profane in the Sabbath when he created the laws that told the priests that they have to do it. Okay, two, can we, we good with those two? We got them in the back of your minds? Okay, we, we're going to have to resolve that stuff before this day's over. Two. All right, Jesus continues. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I I get that you're not Pharisees, okay? So you may not have had the same reaction to this, but Jesus has done what is basically a drop the mic, pay the tab, go rock the next town type of moment. I am something greater than the temple is here. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 
I don't even want to listen to you talk about the Sabbath anymore. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That's a drop the mic. We're going to have to come back to the temple. Okay, that's number three on our list. Two things to tangent, ready? We got them? Why, why, why does David eat the bread? Why does the priest not profane the Sabbath? And we're going to talk about the temple. You got all three? Very good. Okay, but I want, you, I want to look at verse six. I think it, it, it sits in the context of the big question that we need to answer. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now Jesus is, if you're, if you're looking at your Bible, if you, I don't think it's up there like that, but like it's in quotes. He's quoting something. He's saying something that, uh, that a, a prophet from God has, sent, has uh, said before. When God sent a prophet to his people, this is from uh, Hosea 6. I, I didn't put this on the screen, guys, because sometimes we read the screen academically. I want you to listen. Okay? I want you to listen to the words that the prophet is saying to his people. Hosea 6. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Those are, those are references to the nation of Israel. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Were the sacrifice and burnt offerings something that God told them to do? Yeah. Yeah. But did you hear the heart of God in there? This this continues in Hosea 11. Listen to God describe his relationship with his people. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? Those were two cities that were destroyed in the Old Testament. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. What did you hear? This is the part that the Pharisees are missing. See, it's the context of which law is created. A context of a God that desires that his people return to him. That they turn from those things that led to their destruction and death into those things that offer freedom and life. A context of a God that desires his people so much that even as he calls for them to come to him, he goes to them. 
to us. The law cannot bear the weight that religious folks ask it to hold because to do so puts a burden on it that it was never meant to carry. The law is not the entire context of God's story. In fact, it isn't even the main context of God's story. The law has always been an extension of His character, of His desire to protect His people, to use them to bring others to Him. When we remove God's character, His love for His people from His law, we lose the context under which the law is given. God's law that is void of God might as well have come from Hammurabi or any other man with man-based opinions on what is good or not good. Man-made laws are fences to keep you in, just like the Pharisees' additional laws were. God's desire for His people is truth. And truth does what? It sets us free. You need to be careful, though. Truth-tellers run into a lot of guys lately i stand for truth people just need truth i want you to listen to this very closely please either you're speaking truth in the context of a god who created each human in his image who wept at our rebellion and in love came personally for our restoration or you are lying There is not an in-between here. You don't get to truth bomb and hit the love part later. Truth is really truth when it's said in the context of which God is providing it. You don't get to speak out of context and stand for truth. That's a lie. It's a lie. There have been, there's a ministry, ministry, that uh, started buying billboards to put up around the country. And it's a marriage equals uh, bathroom symbol guy plus bathroom symbol lady. And then, uh, please, I could really use your help with this, dash, God. Here's the thing, guys. Is that a truth? Okay. I could, I could probably agree to the premise. Is there context in that billboard? Was it said in the context in which it could actually be true, in which we understand what God has handed down? It's not. It's, it's simply not. These things that we want to make our banner, that we want to stand and stamp our foot and stand for truth on and say, this is what God wants, we are pulling out of the context of the God that said them and the love of which they were born out of and the freedom of which they provide. We've got to be careful that in our effort to spread truth, we're not lying. And that's a struggle. Because, yeah, do I want to see God's word proclaimed? Yes, I do. I want to see people hear it and respond to it and know and follow Jesus and join him and join us in a glorious kingdom. But we can't lie to get there, which means we have to be very careful that when we stand and stamp for truth that it's actually true that it's being shared within the context of which it's true there's no context to a billboard you guys understand, do you understand what i'm saying here we need to be careful because they might be able to le- meet a legalism but if they didn't meet jesus we, we failed this
There's a hint in what Jesus is talking about when he, when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, also kind of points back to, uh, to Micah 6. I think I did give you this one. You can read along with me. It says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring fountain foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Behor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. He's reminded them when he has interceded on their behalf. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Is the truth important? Absolutely. But it must be spoken in the context of all of it. Will we deny what he's saying here is God's truth? This isn't a new part of God's narrative. Sometimes we're presented with this false dichotomy that says the, this Old Testament God is full of wrath and justice and this New Testament is, is a God of, of mercy and love. Hosea and Micah were Old Testament prophets speaking to the people during their time of exile. This was God warning them of how they had taken a law that was an identity given with grace that leads to freedom, that they had turned into a fence and then ignored completely. And the Pharisees, although not ignoring the law, have added to it as if God is not capable of making the finer distinctions in life and then are trying to hogtie Jesus with it. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you don't get it. You just don't get it. If you understood justice, kindness, and sacrifice, steadfast love and knowledge of God, we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't have a conundrum with the priests and the Sabbath. Yeah, I know the law, but I also know God's character. I know that He wouldn't create within His law something that condemns those who follow it. It's not a conundrum. We know God. The priest is fine. He's fine. But they've made the law an idol. They're going to haggle over that. Pulling it out of the context of who God is, what he desires for his people. The character of God is the context through which they should have been digesting the Old Testament laws. Just as Jesus is the context through which we digest every call of how to act in the New Testament, we are not exempt from becoming modern-day Pharisees. From digging out the Sermon on the Mount and saying, this is how you should be. You be that way. The truth is, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to is describing, yes, how people in the kingdom should be. You know why they're that way? Because they're following Jesus. Because Jesus is that way. When we follow Jesus, we do the things that Jesus does. We go where He goes. We talk to the people He talks to. We do the things that He did. We run that very same risk. I want to be the Sermon on the Mount fella. I'd love it if my life always reflected those principles. But it's because I followed Jesus. And because he provides a Holy Spirit that helps me to be that. 
Not because we got a sweet banner or a slap on the wrist or because some guy was pointing his finger at me. It's both. It's both. I need to know where I'm going. I need to know who Jesus was and how he was so that I may be that. That is a call to righteousness. You bet. But it's a call that is passed down to us from Jesus. Temple. Drop the mic moment. Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Great, I'm sorry, greater than the temple? Greater than the temple? I mean, we're not Pharisees, right? So like, I, I get it. It, is, we don't, it doesn't hit us so hard. There hasn't been a temple around. But this is an identity issue with the Pharisees. God's people are oriented around this temple. He gave them that. I will be there with you. It's the focus of God's relationship with his people. It's literally where heaven and earth intersect. There's a space in the tabernacle and then in the temples as they were built. It's the Holy of Holies where God's presence came to dwell among his people. It is where heaven and earth intersect. That's the temple. Which is very interesting when you consider where heaven and earth intersect today. There is no temple. It's the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? That's in us. That's cool. That's a very cool thought. Followers of Christ, you are where heaven and earth intersect. But that's what's built into this thing, right? It was more than a place of worship. It was a place of gathering. It was the closest thing they had to a government. It was their armory. And Jesus is is in constant conflict with the temple. You don't say, hey, here's this thing that your identity comes from. And then say, hey, I'm greater than the temple and expect not to run into some issues. He's constantly in conflict with these identity issues, that and the Sabbath. He pronounces judgment on the temple. He clears the place out twice. He claims it will be destroyed. It is. And the veil that separates the Holy of Holies, that place where heaven and earth intersect, when Jesus dies, it is torn in half, torn down the middle. Jesus claims he is greater than the temple. And he will keep doing this, by the way. It's a rough time to be a Pharisee. Everything that you hold in high esteem, high regard, Jesus is going to point at it and say, yes, better, greater. He is the temple. He's greater than the temple. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He claims to be greater than Jonah. That's going to be in just a chapter. He's, you know Jonah? I'm greater than him. You know King Solomon? I'm greater than him. You know King David? I'm greater than him. You know Abraham, your father? I was before he was. Jesus will keep doing this. This shouldn't be a surprise to us, though. What did Jesus say? He says, the law and the prophets, they all point to me. They point to me. That's why he can say these things. It's an identity issue. It matters who you are. Who you are, your identity determines your authority. And Jesus is God. And when we come face to face with the living God, you tremble, you fall down on your knees, and you get up and you follow him as he lives out every word. We think this section is about the Sabbath. It's not. This section is almost completely about identity. It it matters who you are. Let's walk through our examples again. It's David's identity, who he is, that allows him to take the bread. No one else is doing that. Run-of-the-mill Joe couldn't walk in there and ask for the bread of the presence. But given the circumstance and who David was, the priest gives him the bread. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah. You need to look at my law in the context of who I am. People in need, yeah. When it comes to profaning the Sabbath, it matters who you are. The priests had been called to something distinct. Their identity, who they are, allows them to work on the Sabbath and not violate the law. It's an identity issue. It's because who Jesus is, the Lord of the Sabbath, that he can call these things correctly. He refers to the disciples as blameless. 
And in Mark states that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Who can do that? Jesus can. Because of who he is. There's even an identity claim from Jesus referring to himself as son of man. That's a big identity claim. That's a specific identity of a conquering king that is ascending to his throne, having all power and authority, establishing a kingdom. It's, it was promised back in Daniel 7. Their identity issues. The Pharisees are trying to protect their identity that they retain under the law, the moral code. What Jesus is offering is an identity that is completely tied and fulfilled in him. Because of who he is, all authority comes with him. And they're still fighting to shame him for his unrighteousness. This is the root issue, and it's going to show up in almost every conflict Jesus has with the Pharisees or the religious elite. The problem is, they don't know him. They don't know him. And if you don't know who he is, what he's saying doesn't make any sense. And what he does is confusing. You have to know him. It's an identity issue. In a pretty succinct manner, in this section right here, Jesus is telling them, you don't know the law, you are missing the character of God that it was created in, and you don't know me. You're blind. And you're unwilling to have your eyes open. He, he says that a lot. People that hear what I say, they see what I do, and they refuse to open their eyes. That's what he's after. That's what he's looking at here. All right, now watch, watch what he does. Watch what he does. He, he went from there. He leaves the grain field. And enters their synagogue. That's, yep, that's harsh. You're going to argue with me about the Sabbath? I'll take it to your turf. He leaves there and goes to their stomping grounds. He goes to the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. I don't know why these guys don't learn their lesson. There, there's a weird interaction with these Pharisees. Like, they're constantly trying to shame Jesus. He redoubles the bound upon them. They are shamed. And then they just keep fighting back to try to gain this honor back. And this interaction with Jesus happens in the grain field. He goes to the synagogue, and then what do they do? They provoke him. Surely, surely you're not going to heal this man on the Sabbath. It cannot be lawful because they wanted to accuse him. They just tried to trap him and failed, and they're doing the same thing again. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? What's the inherent answer to that? We would do it, wasn't it? He moved on as if their answer was yes. We will pull that sheep out. How much more value is a man than a sheep? And here's what should be ringing in our heads. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Justice. Faithfulness. The American way. See, that's not part of it. You, you see what he's brought to relief here? See what they're still concerned about? The truth is they'd get the sheep. What's tied to it? Their money. Their value. See what they value? I'd pull the sheep out but I wouldn't go into a pit to get a fella out of there. Surely, Jesus, you won't heal this man on the Sabbath. Their context is bad, right? Are they being faithful to the law? They're trying to be. They're missing the context in which it was created. They're missing God, and they're missing God right in front of them. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, actually, that's, hold on, let's, let's hang right there. Look how broad that is. Jesus, it's, it's lawful to do good. He says, keep the Sabbath holy, set it apart. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I feel like that will blow in their minds. What do you do with 39 categories? You can't split thread, but you can do good. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored. 
healthy like the other. But the, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. He demonstrated his authority, did he not? Here are the things I say. Here are the things I'm claiming to do, the claiming to be. And they balked at it. And he went to their turf and he proved it. And he healed the man on the Sabbath. That's his authority. It's who he is that translates to what he can do. Here's what I want you to take from what we've looked at today. Guys, I'm sorry. I told you I had a week. A week, I tell you. Um, and I thought, I thought, you know, I'd like to be able to package this up for you real well and give you some stuff to put on the fridge at home. But I don't have it. We're just, we're just reading the Bible today and talking about it. I tell you, here's the stuff I want you to walk away with from the scripture that we read. The conversation from Matthew 10 forward hasn't stopped. He's contrasting two kingdoms here. Okay? The Jewish kingdom and Jesus' kingdom. Worldly kingdom and the kingdom that he brings. He's demonstrated through the Sabbath example the difference between the yoke of the world and the yoke of his kingdom. You can keep your yoke and try to convince yourself it's better, but the burden is more than you can bear. The burden of Christ's kingdom is borne by him. It is through him your peace, love, freedom, and righteousness is provided. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. Truth is important. But if spoken in the wrong context, it is as good as a lie. It is, it is just it's not true. In this case, you cannot take the behavioral direction of God and divorce it from the character and nature of God and expect to be speaking truth. He desires heart change that submits to the Holy Spirit who will help produce the behavior that demonstrates freedom. The Holy Spirit has this handled. Some of us have deemed ourselves the Holy Spirit. We're going to go around and make sure we know, like other people know what they got going on, as if the Holy Spirit can't handle the work. I promise you he's got it under control. Do not hear me saying that we are not proclaiming the truth of Christ. I'm asking that your life be a context. I'm asking that who Jesus is be a context. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I'm not telling you not to proclaim truth, but make sure it's true. People know where it's coming from. Because if we're simply beating up so they can be morally righteous, we are creating more Pharisees. Because that's what you've done to them. Be careful with this. I know this is hard. It's hard to see a world around you go in places that you know that it wouldn't be that way. It wouldn't be that way if we would just turn and follow God. I hear you. But you don't get people back to Jesus beating them up with something else. You understand? You, we introduce them to Jesus. Make sure that context holds. It depends who he is. Jesus' identity is what gives him authority. Because of who he is, we submit to what he says. If Jesus is not God, then the Pharisees are right to reject him. But what he says and what he does confirms who he is. We are in the same position the Pharisees were. We have to react to who Jesus is. We're in that, you're in that position right now. You've been presented with information about Jesus. You need to choose the kingdom. You don't do anything. You've chosen yours. I just want you to know there's risks to that. I'm not... I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to, to beat you up top of the head and say you have to do this. You have your choices. But just know what the realities are behind them. What happens when you choose a kingdom that, that isn't Jesus' kingdom? Finally, I want to remind you what Jesus does with this authority. We talk about this authority and say, look, Jesus' authority. We just listen to him. Yeah, but I want you to remember what he does with his authority. The king who has all authority... He sacrifices on behalf of those that have wandered from him. He comes and he dies a death that he did not deserve, a punishment that was rightfully ours to give us a new identity that is completely in him. 
And by accepting this identity and following Jesus, we are members of a kingdom, listen to me, that is saved. And we are kings and priests who will live forever in this kingdom under the love and care of a gracious and generous king who came in both mercy and sacrifice. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that this is a promise for all his kingdom. If you want in, all you have to do is follow Jesus in the door. That's how it works. You don't get to heaven on your own. You know the only guy that was invited to the party. He gets in, and then he looks and says, yeah, he's with me. That's our entrance. If that's not you today and you want it to be, let's talk about it. Let's talk to God about it. There's a prayer room back there. Let's meet back there. We can talk through and see what your next steps are. I want to make it clear that you need to react to who he is. He's presented himself and his kingdom. You need to react to that. And as you embrace his identity, you will see yours change as well to that of a citizen of this low light burden kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.